And now it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're really glad you've tuned in today as usual, and we appreciate that very much. Hope you can stay tuned for the whole hour. Hope also you can tell your friends about this show. And I'll tell you in just a moment all the ways you can listen to the show, whether you're in front of an AM radio or not. And it's a live call-in show, and so I'm going to be giving you the numbers very shortly so you can reach us here uh, on the air. If you'd like to interact with us, we we love that. It makes the show so much better for you to call in and ask a question or make a comment or agree or disagree. We love when people call in who uh, don't agree with us or don't share our presuppositions about the world and the way we uh, way we answer things. We'd love to hear from you about that, and we promise we're going to give you the last word. And this is not just about baiting somebody. My name is Mike Schmidt, as you heard. I'm one of the hosts of the show. I'm the preacher and one of the elders at the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. Gary Jones, how you doing, Gary? I'm doing fine this morning, Mike. Gary's the other host. He's he's the other elder here at the church. And we bring you this show to introduce this community or teach this community, whoever's listening, about the idea of being just a Christian. Hence the name of the show, We Are Just Christians. And that involves going back and looking at the New Testament in a plain and simple way without the creeds and uh, opinions of of uh, people down through the centuries, different traditions that they hold, and looking just at the text of the New Testament, bringing in the old as it applies to that, and uh, and trying to follow that, trying to recreate what the New Testament church was like, both in doctrine and practice here in the 21st century. And that's why if you were to visit us, which I'd invite you to do here at, at the church on Savona Boulevard, you might see something a little different than what you're used to. Not really, not some, not in substance, but you'd see something a little different than what you're used to because we we wouldn't you wouldn't have any ornamentation, you wouldn't have any icons or other crosses, and you wouldn't have all kind of other stuff. You have a very simple building built for teaching and learning and meeting together. You would have people who are just plain ordinary people like you who are trying to follow the scriptures as best they can and live a life that's pleasing to God. And you would en- you'd enjoy the benefit of Bible studies where we're looking at directly at the scriptures, not at a creed book or anything like that, and trying to figure out for ourselves what they mean with the mind understanding that God gave us. I mean, right from the scripture, Mike. Yes, and, and we don't we as elders here do not pretend that we know everything and we're not going to force something on you. We're going to believe what we believe. We're going to we're going to have to uh, guide the church based on what we believe the scriptures say. But no one here is above anyone else. And um, that that's why I don't even I don't even wear a title of reverend or anything like that so it's a different thing in a way but i think you might find it refreshing because it's going back to what we know the church was like in the first century not the third or fourth or fifth centuries or the 19th century but the first century when we know the apostles were teaching the correct things so we believe in going back to that and that's what being just a christian is all about jesus jesus said it in john 12 and i'm going to keep quoting this John 12 and 48, in verse 44, he says, Then Jesus cried out and said, in verse 48, He who rejects me 
and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That's what we're all about. Right. Uh, and so we will appeal then to people on that basis of what does the word say? In fact, right now in our Sunday morning Bible study, uh, and I don't mean for this just to be a you know a commercial for the for the church here exactly. That's the show is of course brought to you by the church uh, on Savona Boulevard, but we're not going to use the whole hour just to talk about the church and as some kind of an advertisement. We're going to try to talk about the scriptures. But the point is that um, now I forgot what I was going to say. The um, the Bible class we're having on Sunday morning, for example, is how to study the Bible. And it's not, in some ways, a typical class that I've taught these kind of classes before, been in them, about how to use concordances and all that. Those are good things. Gary, Gary talks about them. I use them all the time. Uh, but it's more about teaching people how to take the Bible themselves at home by themselves with a notebook and read and understand the text that's in front of them. And it's a slow process of building understanding of, of blocks at a time by learning to read the scriptures. And the more you do this, the more you can understand and you put pieces together and you begin to grow, not only in your ability to understand, but in your knowledge. And so we're, if you want to come and be a part of that, that class, you're welcome. There's going to be no obligation, of course, to come and sit in the class and, and listen and, and participate if you want to. That's at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. So by the time this show is over, we take a few minutes to go out in the auditorium and set up, and we're ready to go for that Bible class at 10. We'd welcome you to do to come and be with us. We meet at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. And uh, that's at the corner of California and Savone on the southwest side behind that little shopping center where there's a little school, preschool, milk and things, that kind of thing. We're right there in that behind that shopping center. So we'd love to have you. Ten o'clock, we have an 11 o'clock worship service uh, also that you can stay for with communion and preaching at 11 o'clock. Anyway, let me give you the numbers. You can reach We Are Just Christians live by telephone at 772 Three four zero fifteen ninety seven seven two three four zero one five nine zero is the uh, way to you way that you can reach us. Uh, we'd be glad to take your call. Like I said before, we'll give you the last word, and you can uh, say whatever you want to say about about a subject. We'll ha- like to have a conversation. If you can stay on the line for a few minutes, that'd be great. If not, then that'll be okay too. Uh, you can also reach us by text message. Gary and I each have text numbers that you can use during the show, which we can respond to, or even during the week. Mike's text number is 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. Gary's is 772-260-6220. So we have similar text numbers. You can reach either one of us now or during the week. And I guess we'll do one more little commercial here, Gary. Uh, this show is available not only live here on the air and with an AM radio, but I know that we have people even listening out of state who listen either live or as a recording. They listen uh, through WPSL.com. One right. way, you go to WPSL, 
dot com. There's a listen live button. Click on that and you'll be able to hear this show wherever you are in the world. You'll be able to hear the show live on Sunday mornings. Tell your friends about that. And you click on the little arrow start button. And start it'll button and it'll bring it up. Yes. Yeah, so click on the little click, listen live then the start button. And then you have uh, the tune in radio app. You can find WPSL on there anywhere in the world on your phone or wherever. Any Alexa devices or Google Chrome devices. Just ask for WPSL 1590, and it'll take you right to this show on Sunday mornings. We also have recordings available on our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. So you can listen to this show going back 10 years probably on on, on wearejustchristians.com. On the first page of that of that is a little button that says listen to the radio show, and you can get recordings. You can get them sent through your podcast apps to your phone if you want, or you can listen there online at wearejustchristians.com. So there's several ways that you can that you can find us. Now um, we might come back to do a bit, to talk a little bit more about a few of those things. Well, I just wanted to mention, Mike, that uh, not only did Jesus say that or indicate that the word that he speaks will judge us in the last day, the word that he's spoken. He said also, after a conversation with Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to to the Father is through Jesus, and he said that, so we need to take a look and care for that. Right. We depend on what he said for our salvation. That's how we know. Not, Not what a pope or a priest says or anybody else in their, in their authority. It's what the scriptures say. And of course, people say, well, everybody has their interpretation. Yes, I understand that, but not everybody, not every interpretation is correct. Some interpretations are built on false premises. Some are just faulty and you have to keep examining. We all are, we all should be willing to change our minds as we go along in life and learn. Well, Mike, my point is that if the word of God is that important, why should you leave it to someone else to explain to you what's in it? Shouldn't you go into it and understand it for yourself? If you're the one that's going to stand judgment. And that's really the point of our Bible class on this. Exactly. You need to read it and you'll start off uh, thinking you don't know anything and maybe you don't, but you'll learn. And the joy that you will receive spiritually from learning, from looking at the text with that, from that vantage point, trying to understand fundamentally what the language means and then how to apply that is uh, invaluable and it's uh, very exciting. So that's part of the pro- that's part of what what we do. And, and I know Gary, it is astounding when you meet people over my life, met thousands and thousands of people, and and in the in my role as a preacher, a pastor, some people would call it. Uh, it is kind of astounding to meet people who consider themselves Christians, but it's pretty obvious that they do not know anything about the Bible at all. And, um, of course, they'll even tell me, I've heard them tell me on the air, I love Jesus, I just don't believe the Bible. Well, my friend, how is it that you know anything about Jesus? Except through the except Bible. Except through the Bible. So if you can't, and and so they'll say they don't believe things like the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, but Jesus referred to those events as historical facts. So, you know, it's just kind of, it's astounding. And I'm not questioning their sincerity. I'm just kind of puzzled at, this is what I think you're trying to get. It's the lack of curiosity about what really is there There. in this text. And when people begin to look in the text, yes, it's just filled with things 
that are astounding, amazing things that are hard to believe. Um, but it's but it's filled with so much that when you begin to see what it, you begin to slowly understand those things that seem so hard to believe, you begin to understand what they are. Well, it, it changes you. And, and Mike, for me, the more I studied, the more I understand, the more I look at the way the Bible is written and all the different parts of it, I've come to the conclusion this book cannot have been written by men. No, that's one thing you can come away with pretty quickly is it's just not some kind of a man-made story. As it right. Were. Well, we got a phone call, Gary. Okay. Jerry, are you there? Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gary. I hope I, you can hear me okay. I can. Go ahead. And I was wondering about uh, the day after the crucifixion uh, when the women came to anoint Christ's body in the tomb of Lazarus, uh, in the medical world, the term aspirate means to clean a wound. And was that basically when they say anointing of, of the dead, uh, they mean, is that what they're talking about? Uh, you know, cleaning the wound, uh, wounds up? I don't want to sound completely naive, but that's my question. And uh, I wonder if I could listen off L, Mike. It's about you, you can. Yes, what you your can. actual job was the day after the crucifixion when they went to the tomb of Lazarus. Okay. Um, You can, Jerry, and I appreciate your question. Well, I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to question a few of the terms that are being used, but uh, in general, what you have there uh, in those events is Jesus was put to death on the cross by the Roman soldiers and they were trained executioners. These these Roman soldiers were not just a, a ragtag, in this case, a bunch of uh, amateurs. They were trained executioners. And that was their job. And, and so when they were given these three criminals, Jesus being one of them, and told to crucify them by the Roman, by Pilate and the Roman authorities, they took their squadron of soldiers out there to Golgotha with Jesus, the other two, and they crucified them, which was a horrendous process intended to last for a long time. Crucifixion wasn't, people that wear crucifixes on their, you know, as jewelry. And I don't, I'm not trying to say this critically, but I, I think if they understood a little more. It's become such a religious icon. It means all these sweet, nice things. Listen, that's the equivalent of wearing an electric chair or a hangman's noose around your neck as decoration. Now, we look at if we saw someone walking around with a necklace with a hangman's noose or an electric chair, we'd a scaffold and a hangman's noose. A scaffold. We, we would think, man, that guy's a goth or something, and kind of Satanist. Well, that's what that's what the 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 cross, the crucifixion, the in the Roman times in Jesus' day was a a form of execution that they didn't even use all that often. It was saved for the worst people, the worst kind of people that they wanted to make an example of. The Romans would crucify people or if they want, if they had a slave revolt, they would go there and crucify a thousand slaves just so the other slaves would get the picture. You know, it was meant to send a message. Crucifixion. It was supposed to be a shameful thing. And it, and that's what the Bible says, that Christ endured the shame of the cross. It was not a point of pride. It was a shameful thing to be hung on a cross, extremely shameful. And so 
they were experts at this process of nailing people to wood and uh, hanging them up there. And you were meant to suffocate over either uh, over several days. You were meant to suffocate. You weren't really meant to bleed to death, although you did bleed because they beat you. And then in the case of Jesus and these three, the problem was uh, the, the trial. The trial of Jesus was illegal according to the Jews, should never have happened on the day that it happened. It happened that night. All these things were against Jewish law. But the high priest wanted to kill Jesus anyway. Now, remember that Jewish law was God's law. It right, was and then the traditions go with that. And they, they were willing to do this because they wanted to get rid of Jesus as quickly as they could. And And the problem was uh, the Passover was right there. And so they went, once they got him up on the cross, they went to Pilate and basically said, we need to speed this up because we don't want him hanging on the cross during the Passover, during the holy days. We got to get ready to go in our houses and stuff. So Pilate told his soldiers to go over there and break the legs of these prisoners to take an, an axe or the back of their sword and break the legs so that therefore, the soul, those prisoners on the cross could no longer push themselves up with their legs and they couldn't breathe. They're hanging and it would restrict the lungs so much that they would suffocate quickly. Well, when they did the first two, they found they, they stabbed them and, and uh, let them bleed out. And, and, and uh, excuse me, they broke their legs. They broke so they their suffocated. legs. They went to Jesus and he was already dead. Now, this was astounding to them for this reason. He, it was way too soon for him to be dead. But you remember reading the text, Gary, Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I give it up. But I lay it down of myself, you see. And so um, they, uh, he, he was already uh, dead when they got there. And uh, so they took this big, one of their big long lances and they thrust him through. Rather than break his legs, because the prophecy was that not a bone of him would be broken. Right. They didn't break his legs, which they did for the others, but they did not break Jesus' legs. They simply stabbed him, and when they did, water and blood came out, which meant that his heart had already failed, and the fluids were separating in his body. He was already dead. And so, in any event, that's how they crucified Jesus. Then they took him down. Now, when the women, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Jesus, many people think he was that rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what more can I do? And when Jesus told him, sell all you have and follow me, he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. I can't prove that. The Bible doesn't say that, but many people think that was Joseph of Arimathea. Anyway, he was a disciple of Jesus. He came to Pilate and said, give me the body. I want to take the body and bury it. So Pilate Usually they took these bodies of crucified people, Gary, and they did not give them back to the families. They they buried them or they well often just dumped they let well they left them hang there until the vultures and birds picked their bones clean and the bones fell off onto the ground. Then they sometimes would let the families come and gather up the bones. But well what was left? Sometimes they just burned them. Uh but in this case, Pilate knew that Jesus was different, and so he gave Joseph this body. Joseph takes it and buries it. Now, what they did was they took um, they took strips of cloth, not like a mummy, and they wrapped around the body, and they would pack in the folds of this cloth various spices. 
that would smell good so that they could sometimes go and see the body for a few days. And they did all this preparation. Um, some people say they put like 100 pounds of these spices in some of these bodies. And I think that's what the women were doing. They cleaned his body off. They would wash it if they could, laid him out in the tomb that Joseph had had, had established. And they had come to the tomb. Uh, I think you can kind of read about this in uh, in John chapter 20. Let me go over there. Uh, they had come to the tomb, Mary had, early in the morning so that she could. John 20 around 16, I think. Yes. Well, it says Mar- Mary, uh, the first day of the week, 20, Mary 20, Magdalene came you know, to the first, tomb. Yeah. And so, um, and it was still dark, and then she saw the stone had been taken away. Now, they were concerned that they wouldn't be able to get the stone off because it was heavy. And so they uh, they were concerned about that. Now you, you're reading down in verse 16, Gary. I was looking down in verse 16. Yeah. Basically, Mary's being told uh, is telling is telling the disciples. Uh, so Mary comes and finds. She brings spices. The other women are bringing spices. They're going to pack more of these good smelling spices around the body if they can get this gardener to uh, move the stone or get someone to move the stone. So. But Number the stone's one, already gone. The stone's already gone because God had raised from the dead on that third day. Now, here's a couple of things. Correction. This is this is not the tomb of Lazarus. This is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. Which is a new is tomb. It's a, a new, new tomb. tomb. No, no one's ever been, been put in. There. There's no confusion about what body's been in there because it's a new tomb. Secondly, uh, Jerry referred to the tomb of Lazarus. That was a different account in John chapter 9 of, uh, or excuse me, John John 11 of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead from a similar kind of tomb where they had a stone in front. But we would assume that he would have been anointed with these spices and, and yes, he, clothed well, he, in the same it says that Lazarus was still wrapped. He came out of the tomb, still kind of wrapped up. He wasn't mummified, wrapped up where he couldn't walk, but he was wrapped up and they had to unwrap him from his old burial clothes, as it were. Uh, I've used that as an illustration, Gary. Some people are, when your people are baptized, they can come forth from the grave. They can come forth, raise a new creature. But a lot of times they're still wrapped in the old clothes of the old life of being yeah. dead. They're still wrapped in some of the habits and the attitudes of, of a former life. And that was Lazarus still wrapped up in those uh, tomb garments, as it were, grave garments. Anyway, so those are two separate events. That's the tomb of Lazarus. That happened in Bethany which is over Mount, over the Mount of Olives, on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. Jesus was put in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea uh, uh, in the city of Jerusalem, or around the city of Jerusalem, a new tomb. So they were coming, aspirating. <clears throat> they, were, they weren't trying to heal these wounds. This was not a triage. It was not as a, a triage. He was already dead, and they knew he was dead. They had watched him be buried, taken off the tomb as a dead man. The Romans knew how to kill people. And um, they were just coming to, we, we would say, equivalent our time, put some flowers on the grave. Yeah. You know, why do we use flowers? Well, because they smell good. I've done, I can't even tell you how many funerals I've done, Gary, and I'm I'm the one that's standing up next to the body and sitting behind the podium. You look at those podiums in the funeral homes where you see people speaking from behind there is, well, they have lights up that are rose colored lights. You know, uh, they don't have bright led, bright white lighting at a funeral home. Cause that would make the body look, 
even worse than it does. <laughs> they have all these rose-colored lights to make the body look a little bit more alive. Uh, they've got perfume sprayed on everything. They put We put flowers around the grave so that, I mean, around the body so it smells a little better in case it begins to decay. Most of them have been embalmed, so there's not much of that. And then behind there, in that behind the podium where I'm speaking, many places, there are all these little spray bottles and touch-up tools and brushes and makeup and all kind of little things that they do to, to make it look up, better, make it look a little better for people. Death is ugly. And the thing that's striking about a dead body is that it looks, yes, it looks like that person, but there's a huge chasm between life and death that isn't like they look alive. They look dead. They look the same, but they look dead. And that's what's so uh, hurtful about the thing. I always, I always wondered kind of makeup to make it look good. I always wondered about that. People would say, "Well, didn't he look so natural? Didn't he look natural?" <laughs> and as a kid, I think, "No, he didn't look natural. He looked dead." <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to uh, appease themselves by that. But, you know, <laughs> I get to talk to funeral directors too because I'm the one riding in the hearse to the graveyards a lot of the times. That would used to be a not quite as much of a custom anymore, but usually they have that you leave the funeral the home funeral procession with the body, and you go to the graveside, and I do a little service at the graveside before they bury the body, and I'm up in the hearse with the funeral director, and the body's in the back of the car, back of the thing as we ride along, and I, I always ask these guys different questions, you know, like uh, I remember one time I so what's the what was the oldest body you ever dug up, you ever had to reinter and look at. And he said, well, it was about, it was 35 years from the time the person died to the time that we had to dig it up for a, to move it. And I checked it and he said, it, it was amazing. He said, the fellow looked, or maybe it was a woman, she looked pretty good. Her skin was leathery, but I could have made, put some makeup on there and had a viewing. <laughs> he said, most of them don't look that good after 35 years, right? Because death Death. decay in spite of all the chemicals that we use. And you can say, well, the, the Egyptians knew how to preserve a body. Yeah, but when you look at the bodies, how they were preserved, <laughs> they, they don't look at all lifelike at all. And, and you know, now, would, you know, of course, it's been several thousand years, but they sure don't look like a person when, when you see them. Oh, they don't either. look like what we're seeing. And yet it's it's amazing what they could do. But the point is, Jesus began to began die. He died. And what the scriptures say about Jesus is the God says that my holy one will not see corruption. Jesus body didn't decay in those three days. Okay? He came forth from the tomb anew as a, with a new body, a spiritual body and so forth. But that's what these ladies were doing. They weren't trying to heal him. They weren't trying to fix his wounds up. They were just trying to to. Uh, as it were in our custom, bring flowers to the tomb. They were trying to arrest. They were trying him. to arrest the decay to some arrest, point. Yes, and they were going to t take care of him for a while until they, after like four days now. Remember at the death of Lazarus in John 11, Jesus said, "Open up the tomb," and the sisters objected and said, "Lord, by this time he stinks because he's been dead for four days." Yeah. So they didn't want to open the tomb because they didn't they didn't want to face that smell and know that was their brother. And it's it is a horrifying thing and all that. But Jesus said, open it up. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Je Lazarus came forth perfectly alive. 
and all this. So they knew he was dead in this case uh, because of his decay. But in the case of Jesus, the women were just coming to do something nice. Anyway, that's what I think about it. Uh, That's what I think that uh, was happening there. Now, in the normal course of things, Mike, they would have left the body there for maybe a year or two and then gone back in and it would have been nothing but bones and they would have taken the bones and put them in a box and put them somewhere else. Probably. In yes. That they, what they would call an ossuary where it, it's a granite or marble box, fairly small, couple, two or three times the size of a shoe box, maybe. And they would put all the bones in there, big enough for a skull and some other bones. And they would put them all in there and mark this. Sometimes they put several people, depending on how, rich they were they put several people in the same in the same box and um after but they would go back in after the body had decayed take it out of the wrappings and put clean them up and put the bones there clean it up and they had and these only only rich people had the kind of tombs jesus was buried in and they would have a place shells for several bodies i saw one of these when i was over in israel it 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 was near it wasn't the place where Jesus was crucified, apparently, but it was pretty near there, and they were building a highway on this side of this embankment, and they were digging down to do something, and they ran into a door. <laughs> they didn't know it was anything there, and then they cleared it all away and and it was a it was a grave site I think it was empty, but it was the same kind of tomb that. You can see the cut. We had to step over the groove where the stone would have been rolled. You go in and you stoop down to go in, just like they said in in the Gospels, and you see these kind of shells cut out in the wall on the right and the left and the back, and they would put bodies on there, uh, and they could keep several there. And then they would, when they got full, they would they would clean them out, as it were, and uh, so forth. Now. You can read about this in Matthew 26. You can read about it in John 20. You can read about it in in Mark 15 and 16. You'll see where they took him and wrapped him in linen there. And uh, it said that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid in the tomb. And then Mary Magdalene, James, Salome brought spices. It says that they might come and anoint him. And this is in Mark 16. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where the sun had risen. And they said, who's going to roll away the stone? But they saw it was very large, you know, and a man was sitting on it. I mean, they, they saw that it was open. A man was sitting on it. And they told he told them that Jesus had been raised. So that's in Mark 16. Well, that's, this, what, that's where it says they were anointed. This idea of the tomb, I think, is an answer to Isaiah 53. He says, for he was cut off from the land of the living for transgressions of my people. He was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence. That was part of a prophecy from Isaiah. So to say that the plan of Jesus, death, burial and resurrection was was a surprise or a substitute in the New Testament is just without Without basis at all in the scripture. This was all planned out. Uh, If you go to Luke, the other passage in the Gospels about this is Luke 23. uh, Very end of that chapter, about verse 55, says the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after when they took the body um, off the cross. 
and they observed the, the tomb and how his body was laid. So they knew how they had buried him and how he was laying in there. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. This is what Jerry is talking about, this anointing. And they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So I don't know whether he used the word aspirate. I would say the word of the scriptures is anoint. They were going to anoint his body with oils and spices and put it in the cloths around his body. So on the first day of the week, it says they and certain other women, this is chapter 24 now of Luke, with them came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now you can read the rest of the story there in Luke 20. So those are the, the four gospel references to these events. They each contain slightly different details, not contradictory particularly, but uh, different details from different standpoints or different witnesses of this actual event. So in other words, um, yes, they, they did come to anoint the body and so forth. I remember uh, I was a young man. I was newly married. And one child who was newborn, uh, less than about a year old, and my grandmother died in Ohio, and we were living in Florida then. My uh, my wife and I, my father, and this. So we were up since up in Cincinnati when she died. She had a stroke, so she died. We had a funeral, and um, it was a she was a Catholic. So they we went to the cemetery, and they have a little chapel there, and you, they brought the casket out to this chapel. And they had it on a stone there or some kind of a bench. And we had a little ceremony there, the priest did, in that little chapel. And then we all left. And the tomb was, the casket was still sitting on that bench, as it were, in that little chapel. So we go back to the house. We were staying with some relatives up there. And after, after a few hours later that day, my father says to me and my brothers, boys, go back over there and make sure they buried her properly. He wanted to know before he went back to Florida that yeah. his mother was buried properly because he hadn't seen that with his own eyes. You know what I'm saying? And so we went back over there and we uh, a little bit unsure of the location. And in this, it's a big old P, St. Peter and Paul Cemetery in Cincinnati. And um, some of the other older family members were buried there, Catholics. And so we went back over and found her grave and stood there over the grave and and looked at it for a bit, came back and told my father, yes, she's buried. Everything seems okay. They'll put a stone on there later. And he seemed satisfied. But this is just the way people are after the burial, after a death. These women wanted to go back there after he was dead and do something else, you know. And then you kind of realize there's nothing I can do. There's nothing here. There's nothing. There's no, nothing I can do. You've done. And I try to tell people that are mourning, you know, once they go through the process, pardon me, I've been fighting allergies today. But anyway, uh, tell people, you know, once you go through this and you do your best and you you um, deal with them through the sickness and the death, however sudden or long term, and then you you bury them and you have a funeral service for them, you bury them. You've done what you can do. There's just nothing else for you to do. And God will relieve you of that responsibility because it's not yours anymore. And um, it's it's hard people to let go if they've been, especially been taking care of a loved one for a long time. It's hard to find something to do, but that's what you have to do. You've done what you can do. And so um, that's what the women were trying to do here. They were going to have to go back to Galilee. They couldn't stay in Jerusalem. They didn't think they could anyway. 
backwards. Their life was about to get altered. Yeah. <laughs> that day, their life changed completely in a way, unexpected way when Jesus, when they met Jesus, having been raised from the dead. So anyway, any more thoughts on that, Gary? Move on to well, I'm, I'm just thinking about I'd really rather get back to scriptures. There, there are many, many customs about death in this country, and it varies from one area of the country to the other. And, and we could probably spend the whole class talking about the difference in customs, but I don't know that that's probably There's probably nothing wrong with them, with most of them. You know what I'm saying? They're just yeah. different ways of dealing with things yeah. per se. But um, anyway, yeah, we need to think about a few of those things. But but uh, this these are that's a custom. Their customs around this crucifixion were a little bit different than what we're used to. And crucifixion was not this romantic event that it's pictured. It was absolutely grotesque and horrifying. It wasn't, you know, everybody gets upset about a guillotine, Gary. Mr. Guillotine, and it was his name, invented the guillotine because he wanted to spare people suffering. He wanted the executions to be quick, painless, and as little drama as possible. Of course, the movies have all dramatized the guillotine falling and all that, but it was meant to be something different than the kind of death that Jesus died. Well, I, I would I would believe that it's quick. I'm not sure that any of it is painless. Well, that could be. I mean, there are, there are many accounts of people's speaking after their heads have been chopped off. Of course, they don't have any air to come out, but their mouthing words are conscious for yeah. a few seconds or more, oftentimes. It's, but all those things are... Life is, it's its hard to get out of this world. It's really, it's hard to get out of this world. It's always an ugly process, almost entire, almost always. It's not pretty. And it's always going to be painful. Crucifixion was intended to be cruel and savage. This is one reason, for example, that the founders of our country wrote in the Constitution that the government cannot use cruel and unusual punishments just to prolong people's agonies and do special kinds of tortures and agonies to make them die like they were doing all over the world, even in the British Empire. And yet people still objected somehow lethal injection is cruel and unusual. It isn't cruel and unusual, especially if you have any knowledge of history whatsoever. You know that it is not. It's exactly the kind of execution that they were talking about where it wasn't drawn out. It wasn't uh, meant to be a, a particularly shameful thing, making an example of somebody. It was a punishment for wickedness. And I know people disagree about that, but uh, I think that's probably historically the a- accurate about the nature of crucifix of nature of crucifixion versus the nature of the way that we execute people today. And the Romans didn't use crucifixion all the time, and the other cultures around there didn't use it. It was only two or three cultures. The the uh, and the Romans the Assyrians would, used it, and a couple of other cultures. Well, and the Romans wouldn't use crucifixion on their citizens they either. No, 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 no. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do a lot of things. They only use it on the worst of the worst. So when you take up your cross, Jesus wasn't saying, oh, you get a pretty gold cross to carry around or you get a tattoo on your belly button with a cross on it or on your breast. That's up, not at all what he means. He by did, take up did, your cross. Take up a life of suffering. Like a life he, of being not only of suffering, but of being outcast. Yes. And shamed and shamed by being a Christian. And we're we're fast approaching that in our society pretty quickly. Every literally, day. literally approaching the idea that being a Christian is something to be ashamed of. So in any any event, um, that's an interesting question there about the crucifixion. Not enough time is spent in by by 
by Christians talking about these events. And what I would want to encourage our listeners to do, because it's what our show's about, go to those texts I mentioned at the end of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read directly what the Holy Spirit said about these events of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Read for yourself what it says. Make some notes. Compare them. And um, then you can go and get some information from an encyclopedia or something about crucifixion. We've got a few samples of skeletons with the big nails still stuck through their heels and stuff and bones. So it's not a made up thing. And uh, read for yourself. You'll you'll be you'll be moved by it. Well, it's interesting to me that the Bible relates to reactions to the crucifixion. You have one centurion saying, truly, this man was the son of God and others saying, well, if he's the son of God, come down from the cross and pray. It was just. The reaction to it was different. God produces events in history that are meant to separate people. We think God, what did Jesus say? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You can have peace in Jesus, but that doesn't mean that Jesus just brings peace to everybody. He brings a sword, meaning a, something that would split and divide. And so the fact of his life and crucifixion and resurrection, that fact that God brought into history, divides people up very quickly into those who are for Christ or against Christ. He says that a, man, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Right. So he comes to divide. Now, that doesn't give Christians the permission to be intentionally hateful and divisive. That isn't the point I'm making. What I am saying is that all truth will divide people out based on whether they accept it or not or live it or not. Everything true will do that. And so we today we like to think that everybody can just believe whatever they want to believe and everything will be fine. It won't work that way because the very facts of nature and the facts of society, everything, truth is always going to divide. You see this in Genesis 1, even, as I mentioned in our Bible class. So here, God said, let there be light. Divided the light from the darkness. Divided the light from the darkness, because it's divided. And Divided and the water from the land. The water from the land. He divided everything at his word. He said, and God said, let there be light. Here's God's word speaking. And when God speaks, it divides up those who would believe it from those who don't. And there's nothing that can be done about that. We like to have this little pretend world that we could all have these contradictory beliefs and everything be fine. Now, now we could be, as it were, tolerant of people, but tolerance doesn't mean I have to accept a falsehood or something irrational just because you disagree with me. And, and that's the whole problem. Passing hate crime legislations won't fix the problem because truth by its very nature is divisive. Well, even... I don't know whether you – I think you saw the article about the lady who was praying silently in this zone around uh, an abortion we clinic. We that on the radio show last week, I think. And, and she was arrested. I got a little bit more insight. Just standing there. I got a little bit more insight into that. It basically was at the behest of the local police because she went to trial twice and was acquitted. And finally she came back a third time, and she says they couldn't do anything until they asked me what I was praying about. And she said, how could they ask me what I was praying silently about? 
what businesses is that of theirs? And she says they couldn't have done anything unless if I hadn't have been honest and told them. So Same it's it, the it, man who was arrested for praying for his dead son outside the abortion clinic, who he aborted, and, and he told him he was praying for his son. They arrested him. And and so this this is thought crime. This is not hate crime. This is what I come away with. The liberals and the devil hate prayer so much because prayer has power. They are telling you, Gary, that they think these prayers have power. Power. They don't would never admit this. Why are they so afraid of a couple little old people standing around praying silently? Why are they so afraid of that? Well, I'll tell you what, the demons believe and they tremble at the name of Jesus Christ. That's why. And who do you think is behind all this business that Christians can't pray for babies and children staying around silently doing nothing? It's despicable. And it's it's here in this country. I mean, that we've already had people arrested for uh, getting too close to the sacred holy place of the abortion. It, it reminds me of like a Greek temple, a pagan temple that that people who came too close to that without the proper authority were condemned because they came too close to the holy place. And even in the Bible, those who were not clean were uh, who were Gentiles were warned, don't come close to that court where you don't belong. You'll be put to death. Now, this is where we are with the holy places. The holy places in our society are not the temples of gods or Jesus Christ or, or Moses. They are abortion clinics where we sacrifice the young. And, and what's what the real point of it is there, what we're, what we're the, the altar in the abortion clinic, the reason it's an altar is, is it, am I getting too uh, worked up here? It, it's an altar. Just take a breath. Choice. <laughs> it's an altar for choice. The whole thing is about a woman having an autonomous choice of life or death. She gets to choose life or death, not her boyfriend, not her husband, but the woman gets to choose life or death, like the Vestal Virgins of Rome, thumbs up or thumbs down. And that's what's enshrined in the abortion clinic, that autonomy of the woman of life or death. And no one has a right to ever question what's done there. And this is an ungodly thing. Well, it's, it's I'm not even discussing the issue of whether abortion should be made. Or, it's an ungodly thing to enshrine choice as a God. Well, you've mentioned it before. I think it's nothing more than the aggrandizement of self and, and claiming control over something that they had no control over before. Because what does the child do to the woman's body? That child takes control of it. The minute conception takes place, that child takes control of her body and they hate it. I think I've mentioned before is what Gary's referring to here, that the word for conceived in yes. Greek, it's used in James about sin when it's conceived. The Greeks didn't view conception as a bringing forth a life per se. They viewed that the new life seized. The word conceived means to seize, to grab, to grab a hold of and to control. So they viewed that little fetus as seizing control of the woman's body and really the woman. As soon as it was conceived, you know, I I could always tell when my wife was pregnant before she could. It's weird. I say that. I know people look at me funny. I could tell being around her and knowing her. From a couple, two or three days to the next two or three days. Uh oh, new baby coming just because she was different. She acted different. She everything just was different. And I was not wrong. 
because that baby had seized control of her. And um, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? But yeah. but how does but so a woman says, nope, I don't want to be seized. I want control. Right? I, th- I think that's behind it all. It, and feminism has enshrined the female will above every other moral good in the country. Every other moral good or choice has to bow before the female will. This is ungodly, and godly women don't appreciate or agree with that. Ungodly women will accept that choice, uh, accept that power. But anyway, sorry, I'm I'm ranting and raving this morning. Uh, Even Gary thinks so. So that's take a breath. Yeah, take a breath. All right. Well, all right. Took a breath. Now back to the subject. No. well, the subject is scripture, and basically what this goes against, I think, Mike, is, is one of the things that I've talked about often. God says that he dwells with those with a humble and contrite heart. What does that really mean? What what does He's talking about a humble heart, willing to give in, willing to come under the control of God and and a contrite heart implying one that wishes to do right or make amends. And so this is what, without this humble and contrite heart, I think the scripture is almost useless to a person. If you don't have that heart, the scripture is not going to do you much good because one of the things that everybody's going to find, and I've said this from the very beginning and some people don't like it, if you study the Bible diligently and long enough, you are going to find things in it you do not like. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's just that's just the way it is. You're going to have to figure those things out, and the, and sometimes you don't have a good answer to those things. So yes, and, and that means you're taking it seriously. Yes. That's all that means. And and there's uh, I told someone the other day that God scares me. And they looked at me so funny because I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to be at peace with God. Let me tell you something. If you read the Bible, you ought to fear God. Okay. You ought to be a God-fearing person because God is so far above us and he does, he keeps his word. He isn't fickle like we are. I can't smooth talk God and deceive him like I do other people or like I could do other people. God is to be feared. I know God loves me, but but that means if I really love God, I'm going to I'm going to respect and fear his word. And that's what's behind taking the Bible seriously, that God's word should be respected. I mean, when you read these stories of Moses being condemned because he spoke the wrong words at the rock and didn't give God the glory, you ought to be afraid of that. When a man like Moses, who God called his friend, he said, I've spoken this man face to face. When he couldn't enter the promised land because he didn't respect God's power over him for on one occasion, you should be concerned about your situation when you flaunt your choice over him. You know, that's what's so. I don't know why I thought, think of this, Gary, but there's this uh, you can do some research on it a movement or an idea called transhumanism trans meaning beyond or cross humanism and what it is and it's a philosophical idea philosophical framework of an idea and people have been discussing it and they would view things like the extreme end of this is genetic engineering uh, read an article about a couple in California who have had, had four babies by all these different in vitro fertilizations and all the engine. They 
they've had their the genes of these embryos altered for high intelligence and other things. You know, they've done all this other stuff. And transhumanism is trying to create a different kind of human to go beyond the standard human to be a different kind of human than has been historically present. And philosophers, ethicists, anthropologists would say that in uh, this idea has been around for a long time. We just haven't had much of a way to do something about it until we could get rid of the God of the Bible. And so back in the 60s, they would say the first movement motion toward transhumanism was the development of the birth control pills where the normal human processes of life could be interrupted and controlled by man in a way that would thwart the natural processes of the body. Now, I am not against birth control, okay, per se. We can discuss another show, so don't take that. Oh, Mike and Mike and Gary against birth. I'm not against well, that. Well, there have been different I, different methods throughout different history. Kind, yeah, there's different kinds of birth control. There are different motivations for birth control, some good, some bad. But be that as it may, this was an attempt on the part of secular people in the 60s to change human beings in a way that they were had never been before to become beyond human. And then you can move even to then abortion. Widespread use of abortion is linked up with birth control then in the 70s to be something that changes humans into being something that they are not. So it it changes the fundamental concept of mother and father and family units that care for the children. Widespread abortion, not in emergencies, uh, but not in desperate situations, but just as a common good that we all supply. That was that's a transhuman thing. And then you go beyond that. Now what we're seeing, homosexuality is another, and widespread acceptance of homosexuality is another transhuman development in our modern culture because it's a denial of the two sexes. It's a you denial. Know, humans of the, are born with two, male and female, and it's a denial or a twisting of those things. Well, even deeper, I think it's a denial of the roles that God has assigned to men and women yes. to play in life. And so, and, and that's transhuman yeah. when, you, when you then actively thwart that with a movement and then now then you come now and there are other forms but now you come to the transsexual this is a fundamental transhuman movement when you and then when you couple this with some of the stuff we've learned through genetic engineering and all the surgeries people are getting away from just saying well i'm i'm, I'm a human being and i accept being a human being and i'll live within I'll live within that framework. They're going to do what they want to do. Human beings are moving beyond, in their view, the way that God created them to be a different kind of creature. Now, the question is, can they succeed at that? I don't believe they can. Okay, I believe this all has a shelf life, a relatively short shelf life as far as God's concerned that this whole thing will collapse and God will bring it about at some point in time. It cannot sustain itself. In fact, one well, the reason that I read this article the other day, uh, by, it's from an uh, intellectual publication about this California couple that are kind of pioneers in this. Their, their thinking is, they said, you know, us liberals are going extinct. 
because we're not having children. They're not reproducing. They're not reproducing. And the homosexuals and the and the liberals are all down below. They're down below the sustainable rate of of uh, of population growth among those groups. And so their view is, well, all these conservatives are so stupid. We don't want stupid people to control the world. Only us liberals are smart. And so we're going to have to reproduce ourselves. And so they're willing to have four kids, which is against liberal orthodoxy to have four children. Well, I think they're trying a different method. I think they're trying a despotic government so a very few can control very many. Well, they make it, yeah, there's yeah. other ways, right? Yes. But eventually yeah. they get over they get overwhelmed by yeah. numbers. And so um, this is where this is where some of these things go. But none of it, here's my point, a lot of those things could be useful under the under the guise of someone who believed in God and God's word, a lot of those things could be useful technologies that could help some people, right, for in fertilization, other things like that. Yeah. But outside of that, they become like a Frankenstein monster. Well, And that's a transhumanist idea, idea of Fra- Frankenstein's monster is a transhumanist novel. Well, there, there's, there's often a good side and a bad side to many things that we have. Uh, people, I think, are surprised to learn that that sex is, you know, early in my life, you know, we seem to have an attitude that sex was always bad or immoral, and yet God regulated it to that it was it was not bad or immoral within the marriage bond. It was perfectly moral. It was what He desired within the marriage bond. Yet outside of that, it was immoral. So God regulates so things. They didn't read the Bible, they didn't understand that. Yeah, but basically God regulates many things in that way that are good in one aspect. Well, and here you go back to the Bible. Who was the first transhumanist? I'll tell you who it was. It was Eve. Satan said, <laughs> "Yeah, this. You, you don't have to be a human. You, you can be like a god. You can be like you, God. You as as a matter of fact, that, God made you. You can be something different than God made you. That, this is the whole idea behind this. That that Satan's sales pitch throughout time. It's not new. Now we just have some of the technologies and other things, and we've thrown off the shackles of biblical uh, culture, and so now we can. So we need to. to we need to know. And I want to make one last point before we run out of time. We're right. we're about out of time." You've often quoted Ephesians 3 and verse 4. Paul says, by, he, he, basically, I'm going to go back. How about Revelation? He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Basically, Paul is saying, I'm writing to you the things of the gospel that when you read them, you can understand them. That's the whole point of the Bible right there. How many times, if we go back to, even go back to the Old Testament, Nehemiah 8.3, they read the law to the people. They read it to them. Nehemiah 8.8, 8, they, they did it again. To them every year, the scriptures say. Yes, they were reading, reading it to them. Second uh, Corinthians 1.13, Paul talks about reading and understanding. So this is not, this is not something that's new, okay? Right. This is something the Bible tells you you can do. So don't be afraid to read the Bible. No, that's right. Well, our time is gone today. I appreciate you listening. We've been all over the place after Jerry's call, but we thank him for that. I do want to tell you about, as I mentioned, our website, which is, pardon me, wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. Take a look there. you find lots of information, and you can uh, even email us from that. 
Come and be with us for our worship today at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. We meet at 10 o'clock for Bible study, 11 o'clock for worship and communion and preaching. Preaching, And you can even follow us on our live stream. If you, if you go to, uh, to uh, YouTube, look up Church of Christ on Savona. You'll find our YouTube channel for our live streams for all these assemblies. So thank you for listening. We hope you can tune in again next week. And may God bless you. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie, heard every Sunday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m.